I actually, this may be like bull's hearted, but I don't know that we get these <laughs> massive bear markets anymore. I really don't because the money Dude, that's what we're naming this episode, bull's hearted. <laughs> the money coming into the ETFs is people's passive inflows to their retirement accounts. They're, they're long-term hodlers. They're going to hodl for decades until they retire. And so I don't think we're going to get a 75% drop during the next cycle. I just don't. So I'm going to keep holding until I'm probably about 40 or 50 years old. At that point, maybe I'll start to shave off some of my stack, but... I think we're really starting to hit that parabolic stage. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. This week, we spoke to Mitch Askew, head analyst at Blockware Solutions. Mitch is a stone cold bro. We met Mitch at Pacific Bitcoin and knew after meeting him that he had to make an appearance on BCB. We cover a range of topics in this rip. We explore the generational differences between millennials and Zoomers, masculinity, technological revolutions, and why virtue is such a requirement for freedom. Mitch is working on a book titled The Conservative Case for Bitcoin. We had early access to it and would certainly recommend it to our conservative minded listeners. Before we kick this thing off, we beg you plead with you to please custody your own Bitcoin. Do not trust exchanges and don't trust ETFs. Don't trust anyone with your Bitcoin. And when you decide to custody your own Bitcoin, there is one solution that stands above the rest in our minds. CoinKite's cold card Mark IV. Everything about its design is trustless. They use multiple vendors for the security chips in the device to protect you from supply chain attacks. All of the code that is running on the device is publicly auditable to ensure that it is honest. The cold card is designed from hardware to software to be trustless and dependable. Don't secure your Bitcoin with anything less. Bitcoin 2024 is coming up quickly this year. It is in July in Nashville, Tennessee. If you are planning on attending, we have a coupon code that can grab you 10% off. That code is BCB. Again, 10% off with code BCB. It's the first time wow, for everything. Of, of all the of all yeah. the pre-show uh, <laughs> conversations, that one that one killed is it. the least likely to ever air. Let me put that it that, way. that would that never. last three or four minutes would sink us uh, both in firefighting and podcasting, Josh. Yeah, that, just like that ski trip we just went on would sink us and all of our careers if anyone ever knew what happened there. Yeah, somebody planned. Just joking, of course. Just joking, yeah. of course. Somebody, what happens uh, before bug- the recording stays before the recording. It does. It yeah. does. I love the afters too. A lot of our guests, they see the, the recording end and then all of a sudden they flick into gear and the, the profanity <laughs> starts flying and uh, it's awesome. A lot of different folks. Yeah, we, we just got back from uh, a ski trip. Mitch, we hinted at it. We were in uh, Steamboat with 12, 12 guys. Big crew this year. 12 brothers. 12 brothers. We're a department of only around 50 people. So <clears throat> getting about a quarter of them out to Colorado for five days is a strain yeah. on the uh, the department a little bit, but everybody came back happy, healthy. We had a great time. Eight inches of powder day three overnight was, yeah, a, was a quad burner, but orgasmic out there. Dan, that situation at that Airbnb. So it, it they advertised as if it was capable of holding 12 people. It was realistically capable of like eight. But we jammed yes. 12 people into this place. It was, I mean, we had brothers sleeping in full beds together. It was, I mean, there were waistbands getting snapped. There was a, there's a guy who legitimately was like 
allegedly, I wasn't in the bed with him, thank God, but he was air humping at night, like snapping a guy's waistband. Like, yeah, it got pretty dicey there. Yeah, guys are away from their wives for three or four days. They start having, you know, wet dreams and such. And there's a body (laughs) next to them. Can you blame them? The the other thing, Josh, I think you said this, but this is a direct quote of yours. Day three or four, it it legitimately starts uh, smelling like an unkempt hamster cage. I mean, it is disgusting. (laughs) Yeah, it was three stories and all of it was floating to the top. I can imagine that energy. Uh, Yeah, I'd ski before, but you mentioned... (laughs) Wet dreams of being away from your wives. Like, semen retention's a real thing. It gives you superpowers. It increases your testosterone. So 12 dudes in there that haven't busted one in a few days, it's it's going to be some pretty high energy in there. Yeah, the, we didn't. We had a pretty, you know, copacetic time there this year. But last year, it actually turned into, like, a wrestling match at, like, 2 a.m. when everyone was drunk. It was, like, lights out. Like, we're fighting here. Like, the testosterone just got too pent up. Yep. Bunch of bulls. Luckily, we didn't break anything too uh, obvious. Nothing wrong with testosterone, though. No, no, definitely not. Mitch, what's up with you, dude? Give us a give us a little life update, work update, Bitcoin update, wherever you want to go off the start and introduce yourself, please, for those that aren't familiar. Yeah, so I'm at Mitchell Hoddle on Twitter. I've been described as a jacked autist, a uh, a walking talking (laughs) Bitcoin advertisement with the side of toxic masculinity. That's what the Twitter AI described me as. I've been cooking up some good stuff recently, so I've been writing a lot. I'm working at Blockware, putting together some good research on Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. Uh, I, I shitpost a lot on Twitter every day, so I'm looking forward to ripping with you guys. I've been a, a fan of the pod for a while, so glad to be on here. Yeah, we yeah. saw you at LA. You are legitimately jacked. Uh, you had a wrestling match there, didn't you? Yes, sir. I appreciate it. Yeah, I did. I, uh, I got choked out by Ben Askren in about 15 seconds, which honestly... <laughs> It's kind of a flex to my buddies back home because I wrestled in high school. So it's just like, hey, look at this. I I got to throw down with the two-time national champ. And then uh, sometimes I'll flex. Like Ben will text me about Bitcoin stuff or whatever, and we'll talk about the markets. I, I screenshotted the text with Ben Asker's name popping up on my phone, and I casually put it on my Snapchat story like it was, wasn't supposed to be there. And people were like, wow, dude, such a flex. Did that just go down on the basketball court? Is that they just threw mats down and you guys started kicking each other's asses? Yes. They threw down, like, hopefully they do it better this year. It was like those gymnastic mats that aren't taped together. They kind of slide around. Plus, they were black sitting outside in the L.A. sun all day. They were so hot. They had to, like, cover them with water just to cool it down because otherwise you're going to burn your feet. So it was a little slick, but great experience. And and I'm looking forward to something similar happening at Pacific this year. Yeah, it's a great conference. All right, here's the question I want to start with. Um your generation is, I think, as, as Josh and I are rounding into our mid-30s. Josh is upper 30s. He's getting close to Oh, thanks. Thanks for throwing me under the bus there. We're starting to realize, this is going to sound so stupid to, to the older listeners, but how much different our generation is from your generation. Like, it's that moment in life where you realize, holy shit, like, we are wound differently. We grew up in a time that shaped us in a dramatically different fashion. I want to hear you talk a little bit about your generation, and I actually want you to start with the strengths. Describe Gen Z, what you think they bring to the table that millennials and above maybe misunderstand and what they what they add, and then we can pivot into maybe weaknesses, struggles, areas they need to grow. But I want to talk a little bit generationally about your perspective. Strengths, the first one would definitely be 
our ability to use technology. So I have early memories of when I was in, so I was born in 2000, I'm 23. When I was like in elementary and middle school, I remember the times before the internet was super popular, but basically from age 13 on, it was the Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook era. And so we've grown up with that. Like all of our communication for the last 10 years has been online. So we're very much a digitally native generation, which makes me wonder why a lot more people understand Bitcoin, because it seems to me like a digital money would be very intuitive. And where I think that disconnect happens is it's no lie that like Gen Z has been shafted economically, right? We missed the entire 2010 up only zero interest rate policy. We were children literally in middle school and high school, so we couldn't benefit from that. Then we we graduate and we're in this period of super high inflation, cost of living's through the roof. And I don't like to focus on the negatives and complaining and everything because you could still go out and, and work hard, make a lot of money and do well for yourself, study markets. But for someone who just works a regular nine to five job, doing whatever, and they don't have interest in markets, they're not going to understand that you need to hold assets to beat inflation, right? So they're just seeing prices go up, their life gets harder to live. And so the fact that they don't understand markets and two, they don't have any wealth to save, right? If you don't have anything to save, Bitcoin is of no use to you. So I think those sort of two reasons are why Bitcoin hasn't necessarily clicked for a lot of my generation, even though you would think being so digitally native, it would actually make a lot of sense to to most of us. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like your generation might be one of the last where everybody is expected to go to college. College has become, I mean, I'm, I I talk a lot of shit about it. I understand that it has tons of value for certain career prospects. But when somebody doesn't really have an angle or they're not really sure what they want to do and they just blindly kind of walk into that situation, not understanding that you can't ever extinguish the student debt without being an indentured servant for the rest of your life. And if you're getting a fine arts degree, your career potential there is almost nothing. Like you're going to be right. a barista at Starbucks. And that is, uh, for your generation, probably the saddest thing I see because everyone's just expected to go to college. They don't know what they want to do necessarily, which is pr- pretty common, honestly. And then you get stuck with hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans, potentially, and you have no real prospects for a career. And then you're stuck with this situation with like housing is way out of reach especially to a barista right now. Like that is the, I think the hardest thing that your generation's dealing with. I 100% agree. I think college is the prime example of capital misallocation. We talk about it a lot in Bitcoin Mm. where super artificially low interest rates, cheap debt, it costs capital to get misallocated either in the form of, you know, unprofitable businesses. They can only service the interest on the debt. They can't actually pay down the debt principal. But college is literally human capital misallocation. People who should be going and studying trades or actually working in the economy. And instead they're getting these gender study degrees. They're taking out all this debt. They're not actually developing any marketable skill sets. And it's only made possible because the government can basically front the money, right? If if student loans were entirely up to the private market, nobody's going to give someone a loan to go study history or gender theory because there's no guarantee of return. And another point there is what other loan could you get without any collateral to back it, right? It's like, just give me a loan to right. either buy a house or start to an 18 year old, 18 year old, no assets. No Can you skills. imagine giving an 18 year old a $200,000 loan and saying, um, go do whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> like that's insane. Dude. So many good points. I'm going to tee off here for a second. 
So your generation, to, to throw you a bone a little bit and to give you a little bit of grace, for a, you, you have grown up in an incredibly flimsy asset environment. So have we, but that's really all you've ever known. Like in, in a ZERP era where growth companies are ballooning out the wazoo, PE ratios are just clown clownish beyond belief. It, this, it makes some sense why there's a level of distrust and an inability to see value because value has been so misconstrued in markets your entire adult life and investing career. And that, and that can in large part be said for us too, Josh. I mean, we lived through some pain of, of the recession that maybe gives us a little bit of, of excess cautiousness, but that might explain why it's harder for your generation to, to, to recognize and see value and potential based on fundamentals. And then also, just to get to, to your point about the divorce from economic reality, like I, we, we had, I'll tell a specific story here. We had friends over, one of them, they're very good friends of ours. One of them is a professor at Notre Dame. She's a science professor there. And I got a little bit tipsy one night and I kind of went off on degrees that are complete nonsense, as Dave Ramsey says, left-handed puppetry. And I, when I was in college, I was a double major. One of those two majors was Bible theology. I studied theology at Wheaton College. And that is a, in large part, economically, a nonsense degree. I learned a ton. I learned how to write and think and form ideas. And in a different way than I expected, it shaped the trajectory of my worldview in a, in a very dramatic way. However, even the, even my classmates that went to Yale and Duke Divinity School, like a lot of them exited with enormous amount of debts or their parents were loaded, one of the two. And even if they get one of the best, say, theology or pastoral positions possible, right? They are treading water indefinitely. And I think one of the myths that's told to your generation and in some part to ours is that you can do whatever you want. I think that is absolute horseshit. The vast majority of people cannot do whatever they want. The dreams that they really aspire to chase in their youngest years are totally unattainable. Yes, maybe a, maybe a few professors of theology will end up at the highest schools in the world making a good income. Maybe a few people will play professional baseball. But I think there's a right. time and place to, and I don't know how I'm going to do this as a parent, but to, to speak some sense and objectivity into the thought process of how you're going to meet your own needs, provide for yourself and for a family in the future because if you just tell people you can do whatever the fuck you want, no, you can't. It's very unlikely yeah. that you're going to make money as an influencer on YouTube. You know what's interesting about this? I think this all stems from some research studies that were done in the late 80s and early 90s where people said college graduates make on average, I'm, not, I'm just going to make up a number because I don't know it off the top of my head, but say $50,000 more a year than high school graduates. So now what we're going to do is just make everybody a high or a college graduate, and that's going to magically make everybody more money. But the flawed understanding there is that most of these college degrees that were in the 80s and 90s were like STEM, like degrees that actually make real money. If you're an engineer, you're a doctor, right. you're a lawyer. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. But when you're going there to get a gender study degree, it's got no real, real world use, and it's pretty... Um, it's pretty obvious how that's going to play out, but it's, it's just this, uh, we take these studies and we take them so literally, at least some giant portion of the population, and then assumes that this is going to logically end with people just being economically better off. And it's just not right. True. There's just this promise that hey, you go to college, you're guaranteed to get some sort of high paying job. And that's just not the case. 
when you're a freshman and you're in your little icebreakers, everyone's saying they're major, you get this vibe that you're all in the same place in life because you're all freshmen in college. But no, you're not in the same place. If I'm studying engineering and you're studying gender theory, we're not in the same place at all. Our paths are going to be very different. Even business, I would say, because I studied economics. I studied business. I went to business school in, in college. That's just like you're better off learning business actually going and working at a business, right? There's just so much fluff that they pack because they have to fill up eight yeah. semesters worth of college hours. And a lot of it is just nonsense. Sure. Like Keynesian economics for one is what I was taught. And that's just complete false garbage. Before we get off this, I think it's incredibly obvious that if you want to do something and you get out of high school, you should go shadow somebody that does it and see what it's actually like. If you want to be a veterinarian, go shovel shit, you know, for at a vet for a year or so before you decide that's what you want to do, because most jobs have a dark side that you don't realize when you're a bright eyed 18 year old and you want to go be a lawyer. Like lawyers have to spend a lot of time reading a lot of boring shit, a lot of boring shit. Yeah. Also do some math. If you're young and you're listening, do math for yourself. If you have kids, try to do some math for them. Like if you're going to rack up, let's use the number $200,000 worth of debt. Think up, find out what the average person in the industry you plan to work makes a year. Reduce taxes. Say that, say that you're going to save your cash flow positive 40% of your income, something super aggressive. Like this is a best case scenario, right? You still need to save and invest. There's probably some wants you're going to have. It's not like all that's going to go to paying off your student debt. So think about how long it's going to take to pay off that loan with that interest rate based on the cash flow that you're going to have in a best case scenario in career. And if the answer starts to be, I'm going to be 47 years old before this is paid off, you're making the wrong decision unless mommy and daddy can write a check for you to go to school. Uh, and if mommy and yeah. daddy can write a check for you mm -hmm. to go to school, then we get into some issues about wayward incentives. I mean, I this is a more complicated parenting topic, and I want to be in a position to pro provide for my kids. But my wife and I are constantly thinking about how are we going to set the incentives up properly for them to have motivation to go kill their own food right because it is is very hard to fuck your kids up really easily by spoon feeding them well into adulthood yep yeah i mean the prodigal son story is as old as time and i think that's something is a bitcoin i've thought about a lot because if we're right about where this thing goes we're all going to have an extraordinary amount of wealth i don't want to raise a spoon-fed trust fund child right i want them to have their own drive like goals, work ethic, et cetera. So thankfully I don't have any children yet, but so I haven't had to spend too much brain power thinking about this, but it's definitely when I do inevitably have children, I hope to have many, it's going to be a, yeah. the situation that I have to tackle appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. I think that kind of parlays well into talking about just the civilizational decline we've seen. I mean, I, it, I could say that on one hand, but then on the other hand, you could say that there's a million ways that things are way better today than they've ever been. But the impetus of what I'm saying is basically if, if you're a wealthy individual and you spoon feed your kids their entire life, you can expect that by the third generation, all of the wealth will be squandered because you're teaching them that this is just, they inherently get this. This isn't earned. This is given. And therefore you can go piss it away without a source of income or, you know, thinking about your asset to, uh, you know, your expenditure side of things. And you eventually, it's all thrown away. I, I view civilizational rise and decline in a very similar way. 
If you've read um, Ray Dalio's Changing World Order, he talks a lot about how civilization civilizations rise and fall on the same kind of a cadence. They get, you know, they're thirsty. They they work hard. They get rich. That once they're rich, they eventually get to the point where they just expect things to be given to them, and then they piss it all away. This is like a normal rise and fall of civilization, and it would be, it's very comparable to the rise and fall of like generational wealth. Yeah, I think that yeah. was that was well it's, said. Uh, it, it's interesting how that yeah. all works. A lot of people they get hung up on this idea of the fourth turning, right? We've got the weak men making hard times, and it sounds bad, very doomerish, black pill. But I look at it as an optimistic, like through an optimistic lens, right? We're about to have a bunch of strong men, you know, in the next two or three decades, once we get through sort of this rough period in human civilization, life's going to be a lot better on the other side. And that'll be when I'm in my 40s or 50s, probably. So I'm looking forward to those days. Just got to head down, grind hard, study Bitcoin and and really improve myself because there's only so much you could do about outside factors and culture changing. You have to take ownership of your own life. Yeah. And I think that's what changes it eventually. Like when people actually start taking ownership and they pass that on to their kids and they teach their kids what is actually meaningful in life instead of just expecting to, you know, profit off everyone else's work, then things start to turn around. Yeah. To, to pull on this generational thread, you're finishing a book. The title you're working off of right now is A Conservative's Case for Bitcoin, correct? Yes, that's sir. The, that's the plan title. Uh, you sent Josh and I your draft. It's wonderfully done, succinct, full of substance. And one of the things you, you talk about there is sort of a, a straying from founding principles of this country. And we're all here to admit things weren't perfect back in the 1700s, right? <laughs> There's a lot of ways in which we, we've we've come far. But in terms of the degradation of property rights and things like that, we are, I think, an, a strong argument that you make is we're starting to stray from that. Um, you, you have a quote that, we're, that, that Bitcoin is far more aligned with the founding principles of the U.S. than the dollar. Talk to us a little bit about this segment of the book, your research that went into it, and, you, and your thoughts on, on Bitcoin as a modern American revolution of sorts. Right. So this idea has been discussed a bit in the Bitcoin community, but I really want to highlight it to conservative, like Republican boomer types. So before I got into Bitcoin, I was very much like an American patriot, I pretty far right wing. And I think Bitcoin, it appeals to anyone. Like there's all sorts of different frameworks you can view it from. But since that was my sort of like educational background, I, I guess you could say, that was the framework I wanted to, to write about. And I love America, right? I see a lot of people, you know, we hype up El Salvador and it's great, all the cool stuff they're doing over there. But I'm an American. I'm living in America for the rest of my life. I want America to benefit from Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin doesn't necessarily need America, but America does need Bitcoin. And when you talk about life, liberty, and property, your rights don't come from the government. This is a core idea of the American ethos. The government just exists to protect other people from infringing on your rights. They don't come from the Constitution. The Constitution is just sort of a document, right? Your rights come from God or they come from being human if you don't believe in God. And so Bitcoin, it gives you property rights in a way where you don't have to ask for permission. You just hold your own keys. You don't lose them. It's very much a personal responsibility sort of endeavor. There's no customer service to call to bail you out and there's no support line. You just have to take ownership of it and Bitcoin works and nobody can take your, your property from you. It's the first of its kind because any other form of property, it can if it's dollars, it could be debased. If it's real estate, it can be taxed or it can be physically taken from you. If it's equities, your accounts can be frozen or the 
the stocks can go down because of bad management. And so Bitcoin is this first really true embodiment of property rights as described in the constitution, something that comes from God and nothing, nobody, it can't be taken from you no matter what, as long as you do what you're supposed to do with self-custody. Yeah. But to to talk about El Salvador for a second and to agree with you, one thing, like, Let's talk Lindy effect for a second or or being able to trust things that have been long standing. Yes, America's imperfect. It can be argued maybe we're on the decline with property rights and such. But in terms of a free society with at least robust infrastructure in place to defend property rights, it's been that way for hundreds of years. El Salvador is running a fucking experiment that's been going for a couple of years. And I actually get a little bit annoyed with Kaiser talking on Twitter like it's a utopia. It's not. A, he's extremely wealthy, and the, the leader of that country is sucking whatever dick is coming in with Bitcoin <laughs> sperm, right? So you're, you're the hot dude at the club saying, all the chicks want to be with me. Yeah, because you're fucking hot, right? Number one. Number two, the demonstration that they have from a security safety standpoint has been going on, like I said, for a couple years. Who knows if Bukele's going to around for a long time? We, we're not there to vet it. I'm not shitting on El Salvador. I think what they're doing is remarkable. I'm just saying to compare it to the United States right now and to say it's a categorically better place to be from a freedom property rights perspective, I'm like, you're out of your freaking mind. I personally, based on what I know, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love this country like you do. I like where I live. I think that what what the U.S. Is, stands for has stood the test of time and therefore is entitled to more trust and belief that it will continue to trend that direction. Um, I and yeah, totally I think some people can that. lose the plot with frustration. Yeah, it's almost yeah. if you're moving to El Salvador right now, you're getting rid of your America passport, denouncing your citizenship. It's a very high time preference move because let's say theoretically Bukele stays in power for the next 20 years, but then his son comes in there and messes everything up, right? El Salvador doesn't have what makes America so great, which it's kind of an, another overlap between American principles and Bitcoin, which is the decentralization. We have 50 states that have this series mm. of checks and balances. I live in North Carolina. Yes. If Washington, D.C. is doing a bunch of bull crap, North Carolina could say, no, we're not listening to that. We're going to do what we want to do. You saw this a lot during COVID. Certain states left they left everything open. They it denied federal orders. You're seeing it in Texas right now with the border situation. So America has this decentralization built in, which I think it's why we've been able to survive the last 270 years despite all these sorts of tensions and frictions. The, the court system yeah, is also 100%. badass. Yeah. It's badass. I understand the world's overly litigious. We live that firsthand as paramedics. It's fucking outrageous. Everything we do at work is firefighters and paramedics in the year 2024 is centered around reducing our exposure from a liability standpoint that so things have gone somewhat awry but on the other hand you have examples where what happens from a legal standpoint in this country is truly remarkable i mean even if we take the sec situation like the sec lost yeah. a grayscale right this is a a federally appointed it, it's very close to the epicenter of power they wanted something to go one direction they lost a case and now things are headed in a trajectory that maybe they didn't desire or intend. That's a beautiful thing. An example of a workable check and balance still functioning in this country. Um, <clears throat> on the same note, I want to talk about technology as a catalyst for revolutions. And we've seen tons of these over the years. Obviously, we've been through many different ages 
the gunpowder is a good example. When gunpowder became a thing, if you didn't adopt gunpowder, you were a slave. You became a slave to the people that did use gunpowder. Uh, I would say that the printing press was another one of those things. Like you, you had this implementation of a new device that could produce information that could be disseminated across and it, it produced the Renaissance. It produced, I mean, I, I think our American revolution is a direct uh, catalyst from the, uh, the printing press, you know, a couple hundred years before that. What Bitcoin and the information age is doing, we are in such early innings of. And it's it's information obviously disseminated at a much faster rate for good and bad. You get to a point where you don't even know what to believe anymore because there's so much information to subsume that you can't figure out what's actually signal from noise. But talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on where this leads us as far as uh, revolutions that could happen because of this digital age we're seeing right now. And I think from your perspective as a younger generation, you might have a finger on it better than most. Right. So you bring up a great point about the printing press. And I've actually been reading one of Murray Rothbard's book, super thick. I am not going to read the whole thing. Conceived in Liberty. It's about the American Revolution from an Austrian perspective. And one of my big takeaways so far is that it was an information war. It was the patriots and then the pro-England sympathizers just battling, like trying to create their own propaganda and narratives about the war. And so it's always been about the narrative, right? Can you drum up, drum up enough support for your cause? And it's the same thing as like happening on the internet right now. So the internet is this sort of battleground of ideas. And I can only imagine the last three years, like specifically during the COVID era, if we did not have internet to communicate and we're just getting fed this mainstream narrative about what's going on, I can only imagine how disastrous, disastrous that would have been. So the fact that we have this sort of free channel of communication, right? The internet has its problems. There's certainly censorship, but for the most part, we can talk to each other. We can share ideas. And that's like, that's a huge thing. And then Bitcoin really ties into that as well, because this sort of next step in, in technology, right? So we don't have to rely on fiat money, right? Because I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, fiat versus gold. Fiat was forced upon people. I don't agree with that. I think fiat was better than gold at what people needed, right? Because as information and trade speeded up, we need something yeah. to keep pace with that. And so money essentially got divided into multiple different categories, right? You have the dollar for medium of exchange, and then you have real estate, stocks, and gold for your store value. But Bitcoin can fit all of these properties at once. And so that that should theoretically take humanity to the next level. And it is it is a revolution, right? Because we, we're saying openly, Bitcoin is better than the dollar. And that's a threat to the current power order right in the current status quo you talk a little bit in your book too about the immorality of fiat the war inflation manipulation of capital markets take your pick at whichever one of those you want and let's talk a little bit about how fiat is is obviously it was chosen because it's faster but now we have a gold-like digital thing that we can send across the internet at the speed of speed of light essentially that subsumes that yeah so the cool part of, I'll start with the war, right? And Saifedean has described the 1900s very well as the century of war. He said, you know, World War One never ended. And because if you're a government and you're trying to fund a war, you can do it either through taxes or inflation. And if you are solely reliant on taxes and you lose that narrative where you can't get people to give money for whatever your cause, you're going to run out of money. You're not going to be able to pay the troops. War can't go on forever. But when you do have access to a money printer, 
war can go on as long as the currency maintains some value in society. And so since 1913, there has there been any period where there's not some sort of war going on? And it sounds like very hippie and like, oh, anti-war, but I like nobody wants to see people die, right? You you can fall yeah. for all these narratives and think, oh, well, the US is spreading democracy and we're doing a good thing, but that may or may not be true. And the way Bitcoin is, if we were on a true Bitcoin standard, they wouldn't be able to fund more. There's the entire incentive structure changes surrounding that and just taking people's property. Even if you want to go as far as, let's say there was a 6102 on Bitcoin, I think this would be a good example of sort of risk versus reward. How much would it cost to go and SWAT team every Bitcoiner's house and take their private keys, right? You're probably going to spend more money doing that than the amount of Bitcoin that you would actually recover. And so war is kind of, you can look at, look at it through the same framework, right? How much money can they make off of war through the military industrial complex versus, you know, how much does it actually cost to, to finance the war? And so when you get rid of their ability to finance the war, I mean, they, they just can't, they can't do it. And so you're literally, it's like a rug pull. And so, I mean, there's a great Satoshi quote out there, I'm sure to fit this, this, uh, this sort of idea. You have a quote in your book that's Bitcoin alters the game theory of taxation. And I think that that directly correlates to this conversation about funding wars, right? When funding of conflict is opaque, this is something that you talk about, Gladstein talks about all the time. It's very easy to just keep throwing slop at a problem when nobody really knows how or where it's coming from, right? When you take away the inflation lever, when you reduce the printing ability, when you add clarity to the financial system and to expenditures, at the top level, it's pe people get to choose. I, I am a believer in democracy. I know there's a lot of people that are too cool for democracy in Bitcoin. I agree with Winston Churchill that it's, you know, the, the, the best of the worst options to govern a very complicated species. But what I, what I will say is that fiat and democracy are proving to be a bad mix. Democracy works a lot better when people can see what they're advocating and for, feel. when they can feel what they're voting for, it yeah. works a lot better. And my hope, maybe this is overly optimistic and simplistic, but that on a harder, more transparent money standard, democracy is able to blossom again. And um, we see some really good net effects, hopefully one of which is is reduced conflict. Yeah, I, I think so. And this point about altering the game theory of taxation, it really boils down to Bitcoiners are going to have the capital and it's capital that you can move easily, right? If your all your wealth yeah. is tied up in real estate, you can't just jump ship to another place if your state has bad laws and taxes way too much. So if North Carolina wants to start taxing income 30, 40% a year, I'm just going to go to South Carolina or I'm just going to go to Florida. And so if you want to attract entrepreneurs, you want to attract people with wealth, El Salvador, great example. They they made themselves Bitcoin friendly. They cracked down on crime and they got a lot more money. They got a lot more tourists. Their GDP is going up. And so I think that's a real world case study of what Bitcoin will do all across the world and hopefully within America itself. For sure. About that information where we were talking about a few minutes ago, uh, it occurred to me to talk about how are you guys watching Elizabeth Warren get community notes from it's Twitter? It's fucking amazing. Like that $40 billion that Elon spent on 
X now was totally worth it for me to be able to sit back and watch these people who are full of shit yeah. get actually called out on the table. And it, it's just it's amazing to watch a senator, a sitting senator who can. I mean, she used to be able to just spout off whatever she wanted on Twitter. But now she's actually getting called in the, out under the carpet and people are actually saying like, no, you're full of shit for these various reasons. And then I've gone through and clicked through it to see if like this is like a legitimate thought out thing. And it's pretty well done. It's amazing. Yeah, to watch. people are getting called out on bullcrap in real time. I see it even not from like left wing politicians like Elizabeth Warren, but even people on the right, they'll post a video and say, oh, look how bad crime is in this city. And the community knows they'll say oh, this video was taken five years ago in a different place. It's like. This is so fascinating the way it's just instant, right? There's no, oh, you say something. Because all, like, a great example of this is, is Trevor Bauer, right? So the media slammed him and said he they, they had all these false accusations. A year later, he was proven innocent in a court of law, but the narrative was already set. So it's really like that first week or two weeks after a sort of narrative gets built, that public opinion is formed. And so the fact that Twitter can shape public opinion uh with the community notes in real time, that that's huge for the information war because it, it doesn't allow these these false narratives to build and even like it's set in stone, right? Whatever happens in the in the first week or so, that's the narrative, even if it gets proven wrong later. Yeah, Mitch, are you on Noster? So I have an account and I I don't really use it, and I'll tell you why. Yeah, I think yeah, that's actually going to be my question. What your thoughts are? And I'm I'm actually when you're done, going to play this slightly bearish Noster. Put that hat on. Go ahead. Yeah. One, it's like a Bitcoin maxi circle jerk, which is fine, but I do want to absorb other ideas, right? I don't just want to be sitting here talking about Bitcoin all yeah. day, every day. And two, network effects are real, right? So people are going to stay on Twitter. Like that's where the inf- that's where it's going on, right? You can't get people to get off YouTube and Twitter and Google and Instagram. It, if there's nobody but Bitcoiners using Nostra, you're not going to get other people. You're not going to reach new faces and I sort of view threads is a perfect example of this threads died at, right after it was born. It's, it's effectively dead. I've, I've not heard a thing right. about it. There's been also many fake, like knockoff Twitters, right? Yeah. Like Gab. And then I think Dave Rubin did one. There's, there's like Trump truth social, like none of this works because network effects are so strong. The more users you have on a platform, the more valuable it is. So it's going to be difficult to really get users to a different platform. I view Noster as like this safety net, like this, place of last resort if we all get banned on twitter okay we can still communicate on noster it's more like this underground like bitcoiner communication network but it's right now in its current state it's not going to reach the masses one it's too like difficult to use the the ui kind of sucks and it's just it's not there so i do like the idea of noster but i'm not bullish on it necessarily yeah i i agree completely I, I think it's a really profound, cool idea. I, in a lot of ways, hope that it accelerates. But the realist in me, maybe the slight pessimist in me, is increasingly reminded that th- the network effects of Bitcoin are extremely unique because of their monetary engine. Like when you don't have a monetary engine behind advancing decentralization and a network effect it's really hard to get it off the ground and you're you you're accurate it is a massive circle jerk i mean it is a straight bitcoin bukkake all over your face only 
type situation. And and if you're if you're a Bitcoiner, you have to think about your friend saying, I, I know this there, these two ideas might be divorced, but I think the analogy serves. Hey, come over to this other social platform, the fundamentals of which are freedom inducing, empowering, but everybody on there is a raging libtard. Like, how do you expect a moderate or a liberal to come over to to fucking Nostra at this point? And it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Um, so I, I love that it's being developed on. I hope it continues to persist. And I agree it's a safety net and maybe in a more decentralized digital future, it really starts to be the under underpinning engine of social media. But in the medium term, uh, I, I, I'm not super optimistic. And, and I think yeah. we're seeing a demonstration, like you said, of, of how hard it is to usurp network effects. As Jeff Booth says, if you don't have that 10 X advantage, good luck. And from a user standpoint, I, I just don't think you have the 10x advantage. Yeah, and you bring up a good point about the uh, the monetary incentives sort of driving Bitcoin's network effect. There is no monetary incentive to be an early adopter of Noster. If you're user 1 billion, it's not like you're really at any loss than if you were user you know 1,000, except maybe you can get a cool Twitter handle like I or Noster handle. I went and grabbed at Mitchell. Just in case Nostra ever blows up, I've got a good handle. But other than that, being an early adopter, it's there's disincentives for that because it's just there's nobody else on there except for Bitcoiners. Yeah, I view it almost like ham radio. Like nobody really uses it, but if you need it in a pinch, it's there and it's available, and you can use it whenever you need to. Yeah, but wait, wait one other comment on that: um, the the freedom digital warriors out there that are like, I'm off Twitter. I'm going to Nostra only. I, I, res I respect where they feel that they're coming from, but I would also challenge them by saying, you have a really important message and you are narrowing, not broadening the scope of that message tremendously. Like I would say this to, to Matt O'Dell, get your ass back on Twitter, dude. You're communicating to like, one one hundredth the number of people you were before, and they all currently agree with you. Get your fucking voice out there. You've got an incredibly important message to deliver. I know. I understand yeah. you think Twitter's cucked and it's fucking you're, you're slave to the blah blah blah. It the the audience is broader, and you have an important message, even if the medium is imperfect. Right. I, I was well said. And Od Odell, if you're listening to this, we want you back on Twitter, man. You don't have to get the blue check. Yeah. Just tweet. Like maybe your reach won't be as much as with the blue check, but you're still gonna hit tens, hundreds of thousands of people. For sure. <clears throat> and your book, I love the idea that you bring up about virtue as being necessary for freedom. And the other day I tweeted this quote from, uh, it was Ben Franklin. He said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become more corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. Tell, talk to us a little bit about why it is that freedom requires virtuous people. Right, so you have to have some order that you're ascribed to and i can't remember which founding father said it but they described the constitution as only for a moral and religious people and i think a good idea or a good example to to compare like freedom versus virtue is a drug addict right so if you take the fully radical libertarian approach the drug addict's free he could do what he want he's this is great he's free he's shooting up heroin under the bridge this is awesome right he's, he's living his best life but he's not actually free. He's a slave to his addiction. You're always a slave to something. So you can either, like I'm, I'm a Christian, so I, my highest order is like the Ten Commandments and, and the teachings of Jesus, right? That's what I obey. 
maybe someone who doesn't believe in God and they're kind of a statist cuck, their highest order is, you know, what the government says, right? <laughs> <laughs> or someone who's <laughs> someone who's a radical libertarian, their uh their order is gonna be like their fleshly desires, right? So whatever feels good in the moment, that's what I want to do. Like you're you are your own God in that scenario. So everyone has a certain order or morality that they're listening to, yeah. even if you're quote unquote free. And so I think to really maximize freedom, it's not necessarily like the ability to do what you want whenever you want, but the ability to do what you ought to do and do the right thing. Right. So I think you said something really important there, which is we, I think the world's become more secular in the last 20, 30 years. I don't think that's very arguable. Right. But I think the problem is, is that people being what they are, they're always looking for a master, somebody to tell them what to do. And God has been replaced by the state for a lot of mm. people. It's either that or, you know, hedonism, which is also another rabbit hole that is dangerous in a lot of ways. But we are all kind of enraptured to something in some way. Like if you're, if you're, if you don't have a God, you're replacing mm -hmm. it with something else. And what is that something else imposing on you? That's an important question to consider in your life. Yeah. Because I mean, if you were, if the God, if state is your God, you did all kinds of insane things in the last three years that you probably wouldn't have done if you didn't have the state as your master, you know, at least not in such a overt way. Right. It has so twisted people's way they perceive the world. And I, I mean, I have been a Christian. I, I wouldn't necessarily call myself one now, but I can definitely see the benefits of being one. I understand. I completely understand why you would be. Yeah. And it's uh, that's another very complicated topic yeah. that we could yeah. I think I think what what you're saying though it it for the atheists and agnostics listening this reality that we just expressed that in the midst of chaos which the world in large part is people are in search of order whether that order is true or not, we won't get into that debate now, but people crave order. They're going to find handles to latch onto because they're flying on a fucking airplane heading into the atmosphere at high speeds and they don't want to fall. Like People are in search of, of some kind of clarity in life, whether it's true or not. And so I think when you realize, even if you're an atheist listening, that you subscribe to some kind of code of conduct, uh, set of ideas that that group adheres to. You have more grace for other people to latch on to ideas you disagree with. Um, people that act as though they're above subscribing to a certain ideology are just unaware of what ideology they're subscribing to is kind I of the point 100%. I'm making. And so I think for me, as I've gotten older, like my spiritual trajectory, I grew up incredibly conservative evangelical Christian. I went to school to study to be a pastor. I have gone in a very different direction and my worldview's changed a ton, but as the older I get, although I don't agree with that, with that worldview that I came from, I, I'm, I increasingly, I have more grace for those that do. And I'm trying to take a posture of continuing to learn from them and realizing that there may be imperfections in that belief system, but there's also a lot of beauty. And I, I guess we're, we're on a higher topic of just, People are so binary in their thinking, myself included, yeah. on a lot of fronts. And even if we take conservatives versus liberals, right? You wrote a book, The Conservatives Case for Bitcoin. 
I got the progressives case for Bitcoin behind me. I'm sure when you read that, there's a lot he said, or if you read that, or if you do in the future, there's a lot he said that you can latch on to. And so getting away from what team we're on and just totally rejecting the opposite side of the fence is something mm-hmm. that any responsible intellectual just grows out of and starts to embrace right. complexity and that everyone has something to bring to the table. For sure. You know? It's really funny to listen to people that are atheists and then listen to their worldview and you're like, dude, being a full-blown atheist is just, to them, they think like, say, Christianity is crazy. It's just as crazy to not, like, if you're not somewhere in the middle, I think you're kind of crazy because you, you can't criticize Christians for being Christian while being an atheist when you're just literally the other end of the spectrum. Like that, that side is just, has got so many pitfalls that they would love to criticize the other side for, but they don't even realize they're doing themselves. I think everyone is just biased in that way. It's hard for anyone to really on opposite ends of the spectrum. In my humble opinion, there's a lot of excess certainty. So if we were to go to the furthest reaches of Christian fundamentalism, there is an enormous amount of certainty that's totally unwarranted. If you go to the furthest reaches of atheism, you have an enormous amount of certainty that's totally unwarranted. And so even though they think they're on opposite ends of the circle, they've actually gone all the way around 360 all degrees the way and they're touching, all they're the touching tips. Well, I would, I would push back on that and say <laughs> part of what makes Christianity Christianity is faith. It does require... No, it's not blind faith. Like I think there's a lot of yeah. good evidence out there that Jesus Christ was the son of God and he resurrected. But at the end of the day, I wasn't alive 2000 years ago. I'm not one of the 500 eyewitnesses who saw him after the crucifixion walking around showing the scars on his hands. So there is faith to be had. So it's not necessarily certainty on that end of the spectrum. And I guess a good, a big point I would want to get across it, a C.S. Lewis quote. He says, there's a God sized hole in the heart of every man. So what do you fill that hole with? And I find that yes. I'm a very flawed human. I've made a lot of stupid choices in my life. I've been wrong about a lot of things. So I don't want to fill that with me. I don't want to be my own God and think I know what's best for my life. So I choose to subscribe to that. That's a, probably a bad, bad word to use. But like, I'm a Christian for that reason. Like, I know I don't know have all the answers. So I want to basically worship the God that created the universe because he obviously does. Yeah. To talk about CS to talk about CS Lewis just for a second before we get off this. Um we talk a ton on this show about steel manning and picking the the best you can find from the other side. And although I largely don't agree with CS Lewis, I used to enormously and I think if there is somebody that just thinks Christianity is total and complete hogwash and can't fathom why anyone would be a Bible believing Jesus following Christian, the first book I recommend is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I think it is the best representation of intellectual integrity in short form I can think of. Obviously, you could recommend a lot longer stuff, but I say that like to myself. I Like I said, I'm not, I don't agree with most of C.S. Lewis's conclusions, but I understand the coherence of his arguments, and I think it's a great place for people to start. You're welcome to throw in a resource if you have another one. Uh, for people that just have never, haven't grown up in that environment, haven't been, haven't been around thoughtful really intelligent, uh, evidence-based Christians. Yeah. Uh, everything C.S. Lewis wrote, but that book in particular comes to mind. Yeah. That's a great recommendation. I got it sitting right over there actually. And the cool part about that book, he wrote it. He was an atheist when he started, he was going out to yeah. disprove yeah. Christianity. He was a hardcore atheist yeah. and he like going and searching for the other side, seeing what they had to say and looking for evidence. He became one of the be- best 
like well-known Christian authors of all time. Another great book I'd recommend is More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. Lays out a lot of the yeah, same arguments as um, your yeah. Christianity, but it's even shorter. So if you're like me, short attention span, definitely read More Than a Carpenter. Yeah, that <clears throat> what you said about everyone having a God, you know, sized hole in their heart. I think that is a very wise thing to to understand that at least, because then you understand that you need to subscribe to something. There's got to be something leading you that is, you know, a moral um, compass. Otherwise, you can very easily get lost in this yeah. world. And I think the caution, the ca- yeah. So I would say, since it's a Bitcoin podcast, a lot of the listeners, I imagine, they felt that with Bitcoin, which. I don't think that's the end all be all. I don't think that's the best answer, but it is. <laughs> yeah, well, Scott, I think that's very true. Well, that. It is a good. It's a moral system, right? It's ethical. It's it's free and open source. It doesn't steal from people. And so I've met a lot of people going to these Bitcoin meetups and talking online. Bitcoin is their god. I would say dig a little deeper, but it's certainly a good place to start. Bitcoin is sort of what dragged me from being like a lukewarm Christian to actually like taking the next step and trying to live righteously. Yeah, uh, you you went the direction I wanted to go, which is that, that Josh t- totally resonate. Like, but the other thing is people can, in my opinion, people hastily rush to fill that hole. And what, what fills that hole may not be true, may not be sustaining. They fill that hole by filling a lot of holes. Exactly. exactly. And so <laughs> yeah. it, I think, I think that that is one of my critiques of, uh, a lot of religious and spiritual belief is that, um, people are rushing to to get that handle in their life, right? To have that security and that position. But then they get in environments where, like I said earlier, that community is pushing them towards a level of certainty that just doesn't exist. And I think a lot of my personal journey is just a recognition of how complex a lot of these topics are, of how a lot of the truth is extremely difficult to get to, if not impossible, and, and, and a lot of substance lies somewhere out in the gray. Um, and I, I agree. There are a lot of people in Bitcoin that are that worship this thing. I've said it on the show before. I don't know if I'll ever get around to it, but I have the outline of an article, the title of which right now is going to be Bitcoin Christianity and the Origins of Religion and talk a lot about how I see Bitcoin, like the community tracing how I think a lot of religious belief systems start. Um, and I, you're even starting yeah. to see that the, the origins of myth and and church and all these types of things coming up in Bitcoin. Bitcoin's amazing, but there are a lot of people on Twitter and Noster that have made this, in my opinion, an excess part of their identity. Uh, and so maybe maybe that's a message to some of our listeners of stop listening to this fucking podcast and only taking in Bitcoin podcasts. Go explore some other topics, get some fresh air, spend some time with your kids and Stop focusing so much on your net worth. Right. I mean, Bitcoin is, it's yeah. not the end. It's just the means to an end. You want a satisfying, fulfilled life. You want to spend time with family. You want to spend time enjoying the simple things you like. I enjoy the sunrise and jumping in the ocean. Like These are things I want to do. Bitcoin can help me sort of achieve my goals in life, but Bitcoin is just a tool. That's all money is. It's a tool to make your life better. You don't want to worship the tool. You don't want to worship yeah. money. I, I met a guy at a conference and he's like, yeah, I would probably sell my kids before I sold my Bitcoin. It's like you completely lost the plot at that point if, if you're <laughs> saying these things and genuinely believe it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's easy to see how that slippery slope can occur, though. You know, like the uh, I don't know if you watch this when because we're a little our age differences a little, but the Scrooge McDuck McDuck uh, like vi- visual of like swimming in the gold coins or whatever, like 
it can be an obsession. Yeah. Like if you have a certain amount of Bitcoin and you're like, okay, well, when it hits 200,000, I'm going to, you know, pay off my house or something. But then it gets there and you're like, I just can't do it. Like it's an obsession where you can't just let go. That's a problem for a lot of people. I think it's going to be a problem. Yeah. It's going to help the price yeah. though. I mean, that might, that, I'm okay with that. Right. And you have to be willing to, to you guys, have, you made a great video about a couple months ago about like preparing for a bull market. And you do have to be able to let go of your Bitcoin at some point in the future. Yes, hodl, buy the dip and do all of these things. But at some point, part with some of your coins and like actually enjoy your life. You don't have to get rid of your whole stash. Definitely don't do that. Try to pass it on to your offspring, create generational wealth, but don't just cling to these things and, and live in poverty forever. Yeah. Turn your kids into pieces of shit by letting them have all your Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I have found myself at points in the whatever, six and a half years we've been around Bitcoin and investing in it. I found my mood tracing the price at times. Like I'm in a great mood because Bitcoin's surging off. Something's a little off. It's because the Bitcoin price is down. Yeah. And that's, that's a flashing red light. That's, I bet we could all admit yeah. that. Yeah. That's a flashing red light that the priorities need to get in order. And, you know, Josh, we were talking recently. We love this show. This has been one of the, a huge blessing for, for us from an intellectual standpoint. It's obviously turned into something more than just the, the, the tiny little thing that it started as. But there is also a downside to recording about Bitcoin every single week or working in Bitcoin like you do, Mitch, because there is there are times where you you want to disconnect. Like we're, we're in a way we're sort of forced to think about our portfolio and our investments and and the and the price movement of an asset, which I really enjoy. It's one of my favorite topics. But there are also periods where I'll be dead honest, Josh, I know you feel the same. I feel like unplugging for three months and not thinking about Bitcoin. But when you have a podcast, yep, that's not that's not really in play. And may, maybe that's a caution that we've given on here a dozen times, which is for certain people, this industry is an awesome fit. But for a lot of people, this best serves as a hobby. I found that I worked in the golf business. Yeah. I played golf in college. I went into the golf business and I realized after six years of doing that, Golf for me needs to be a hobby, not a career. And I think there's a lot of people in Bitcoin that that's probably the best fit for them. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I find myself thinking about Bitcoin all day. And it's nice. Like we mock normies and stuff and we make jokes about them. But it's great to go hang out with someone who doesn't understand Bitcoin. I don't have to think about it. We're recording this on Super Bowl Sunday. When we get off, I'm going to go hang out with some friends and we're going to watch football and we're going to eat some good food. I'm not going to think about Bitcoin. I'm not going to check the price. And those times are definitely refreshing. Yep. I think um, before we round this thing out, we should get a little bullish. And I want to start this by saying my wife met a new, uh, new friend, guy. right? Yeah. So I've never <laughs> met she's a new dude. Yeah. She met a new dude. She met a new friend and she's like, hey, they've got kids our age, our kids age. Let's go hang out with them yesterday. So we go hang out with them. So we talked about all kinds of shit having nothing to do with, nothing to do with Bitcoin. Somehow it came up and I didn't start it. He saw, He talked about how He'd invested in crypto a few years ago. So I was talking, we were talking about just bullshit crypto stuff. And I brought up Bitcoin and he had absolutely no interest, which I think is incredibly bullish. A guy like in his mid thirties who as Bitcoin is at like $47,000 or whatever it was yesterday has got absolutely zero interest and had no idea where it's at or what it's doing or its future potential or any idea what money is or any of the things that we talked about today. The guy's got no idea which is fine. Like he's just a normal dude. He's a nice guy. 
But the fact that he doesn't care is ultra bullish in my view. 100%. Because he, by the time he does care, Bitcoin's going to be 100 grand or or above yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, you look at Google Trends, Bitcoin's at like all-time lows in search. So people aren't even yeah. paying attention. Even with the ETF, people that work on Wall Street and or in banking, they kind of know. They saw it. But normal people have no idea this even happened. And here, Bitcoin is worth for months on end just talking about ETF, ETF, ETF nonstop. Most people have no idea. And I think Joe Burnett, my former colleague at Blockware and a good friend of mine, he put out a quote, something along the lines of, you know, the ETF isn't the demand, but it's the plumbing for the demand. So when the demand does come, there's this easily accessible vehicle for people who don't want to liquidate their retirement account assets and have to take a tax penalty. They can get Bitcoin exposure through those vehicles. Right. And all the while, these ETFs are hoovering up like six to nine X the supply created every day, even before the halving happens, which will then put it to like 12 to 14 X the supply every yeah, day. It's insane. Like this shit is going to get it wild. It smashed all right. ETF records in terms of inflows. Like the BlackRock and Fidelity are already like the top 10 ETFs in, in total flows. And they've been out for what, a month? It's absolutely insane. I'm super bullish over what's going to happen over the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah. Where are you pulling the plug, Mitch? What's the number? Uh, I'm thinking we, I actually, this might be like bull-tarded, but I don't know that we get these <laughs> massive bear markets anymore. I really don't because- Dude, that's what we're naming this episode, bull-tarded. The money coming into the ETFs is people's passive inflows to their retirement accounts. They're, they're long-term hodlers. They're going to hodl for decades until they retire. And so I don't think we're going to get a 75% drop during the next cycle. I just don't. So I'm going to keep holding until I'm probably about 40 or 50 years old. At that point, maybe I'll start to shave off some of my stack, but- I think we're really starting to hit that parabolic stage uh, in the S curve. I think really the, and I'm no macro guy, I definitely take a left side of the bell curve approach to macro, but where Bitcoin goes this next cycle, I think is very dependent on liquidity. And, you know, do they end up printing a bunch of money this year like they did in 2020? And then if so, how much money do they print? Because I think that's really what's going to be the the main catalyst to get us to, you know, 200, 500, 700,000, wherever we end up. Yeah. I don't want to get too frisky too early, but I do agree that in an ETF environment, you have this perpetual brokerage account, retirement account bid like you have in traditional markets, right? The S&P has a, a more robust lower layer because of how many people are investing passively with their brain off with every paycheck. And as that continues to happen more and more with Bitcoin, one would think that it would temper volatility. However, if we think this is going to be as upwardly volatile as it likely could be, with that's going to come downward volatility. But dude, I agree. I was going to talk Google Trends too. When you see the price near 50000 and the mainstream narrative not really rallying around it, you know that that's going to come back. What is price going to look like in that environment? Um, I think a lot of people are sleeping on this. And look out, man. Hash rate too. I mean, it keeps going through the roof. This is one one question I was I was gonna have for you at Blockware is just where's this coming from? What does this mean for the mining landscape? What do you need to be competitive? Do you have any thoughts on hash rate and mining at this right. date and time? So the new S21s and M60s, the latest generation of hardware, sub 20 joules per tera hash, they're finally hitting the shores now. So they were announced 
couple months ago, but ordering machines from China, it takes a while to get here. They're finally getting plugged in. So I think that's at the time of recording, we're about to get like a plus eight or 9% difficulty jump. I think that's a lot of these new machines coming online. And the smartest people in Bitcoin, the smartest miners, they know that the halving is the time to sort of reset, right? You've got four years of the same block subsidy, right? It's a new epoch, it's fresh. Get the latest generation machine, get the lowest power rate you can in mine. Because if you buy ASICs at the top of the bull market, you might not do so well, right? You want to mine when everyone else is scared. Everyone is scared of the halvings. But the best miners understand that the halving is the time to go in because hardware is cheap. Everyone's freaking out. You know, we're about to hash price is going to drop in half overnight. But that's, you got to get in when everyone's scared. I mean, look at Swan. They just deployed, what, seven exahash or something ridiculous. You think Swan, yeah. do you think they're stupid, mm-hmm. right? Like they're not jumping in haphazardly. This is a calculated move. And so the best miners are those that buy rigs when they're cheap and before the bull market starts, because you don't want to be plugging your machine in at the top. You want to be plugging it in before. And so you get that whole ride up to just arbitrage because difficulty will, it'll keep going up slowly, but a lot of the new demand that sort of comes in the bull market, it takes time to get online. So that's your window. You want to mine before hash rate really catches up because price can move quickly. You know, we can get 10, 20, 30% daily candles on the reg, but hash rate can't move at that same velocity. It takes physical effort, physical energy, shipping machines from China to make big moves in hash rate where price can move much quickly. So you want to be online before price rips and then mine until hash rate actually ends up catching up. Mm. Wise words. <laughs> you, you said on Twitter recently that you think MSTR is a better buy than the ETFs. Why? Well, you don't have the annual fees, one. And two, if you look at BTC per share, per share of MSTR, it's gone up over time. So MicroStrategy, in a way, it's accumulating Bitcoin for each of its shareholders, right? So they're diluting the stock, right? Sailor issues more common stock. But with that, he's buying more Bitcoin, putting more Bitcoin on its balance sheet. And they have the profitable cash flows from their software business. And so with all that, they're going into Bitcoin. So I just buy and hold spot Bitcoin cold storage because I don't have any retirement accounts or nothing. I was only 20 years old when I figured out Bitcoin. So, you know, the thousand bucks I had on my IRA, I sold and bought Bitcoin. So, but if I did, if I was, you know, 40, 50 years old and I had money and I wanted Bitcoin exposure, but I didn't want to take it out of these accounts, I'd be buying MicroStrategy and I'd be buying Bitcoin mining stocks. I wouldn't be buying these ETFs. Interesting take. Interesting take. Yeah, we, we Josh and I debate off microphone a lot what to do with our MSTR positions. I've actually increased mine recently. Um, yeah, I'm sitting tight. And I don't know, it's hard to know, but I, I agree with everything you just said. And I think the upside on that fucker could be I pretty agree, significant. Yeah. I sold GPTC like a year, over a year ago and just bought MicroStrategy with those proceeds. And it hasn't been too bad. Yeah, I mean, these, yeah. these things are going to rip. The question is, like, obviously they're going to rip in fiat terms if we're right about Bitcoin, but will they outperform Bitcoin? I think that's what the three yeah. of us are trying to determine. And over the long term, I don't think so. I think Bitcoin outperforms everything, but during a sh- like a shorter window, maybe one to three years during a bull market, it's very likely that a lot of these things are going to outperform Bitcoin. So definitely don't go 100% into micro strategy, but that is a, a good play if you're trying to ride these Bitcoin tailwinds and that's something I would like. I own a few different uh, mining stocks. It's something I'm not looking to hodl until I'm 50 years old, but maybe sell it, you know, 
12, 18 months from now, just depending on the market. Yeah. Yep. hundred percent. Dude, this was a blast. I enjoyed it. We, we, we were all over the place in this one. We covered a lot. Uh, yeah. anything you want to throw in as a closer and then a handoff to you, your work and what, what are your future plans with this book here? I appreciate you guys having me on this. Like I said, before we started, it's the only podcast I would record on Super Bowl Sunday. Cause it's just like, I'm throwing down with the boys, you know? So follow me on Twitter at Mitchell Hoddle. That's pretty much the only place I'm active. I am publishing a book sometime before the having it's pretty much done. I'm just nitpicking at this point and I'm looking forward to getting that out there and actually having some proof of work beyond just sort of shit posting on Twitter. Cool. Cool. Nice, man. Who do you Appreciate got in the Super Bowl tonight? Fun People will know by the time this come out, but who's your prediction? I don't want Taylor Swift and Pfizer Kelsey to win, but I I think it's in the cards. I'm not too sure. If I was a betting <laughs> man, I'd, I'd take the Chiefs, Dude. but I'm not going to bet on this one. Yeah. Have you guys uh, read about the conspiracy theories that this is just like a deep state situation where Taylor Swift is supposed to throw her uh, back behind Biden? Yeah. There's been some weird conspiracy shit online about this. Yeah. It seemed like destiny that she, it seemed like destiny that she was going to end up in Vegas at the Super Bowl. Yeah, sure. it, it does seem a little odd. I'm not sold on the NFL is rigged idea. A lot of people throw that around. I think there's a lot more things that are are likely to be rigged that are more serious than football. But it is it's certainly an interesting thing, and I'm not looking forward to seeing her pop up on the screen every 30 seconds. I'm looking forward to those Bitcoin commercials though. Those should be lit. Yeah. That them being them being in the Super Bowl definitely has nothing to do with the generational best quarterback of our time and the best tight end that's ever lived. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, dude, this is a deep state conspiracy. Dan. Right, you just don't like, get it's it. insane that they're in the Super Bowl. I know the offense is a little <laughs> off, but second most second least points allowed by a defense in the league with the best quarterback in the league. It's it's uh, it's quite the team, man. I'm yeah. excited to see the game. Andy Reid had nothing to do with it. It's all a conspiracy by Goodell and Taylor Swift. Yeah. It's going to be a good game. It's going to be a good game. <laughs> Purdy and McCaffrey getting after it, too. I'm pumped. Yes, sir. Uh, appreciate you, dude. Thanks. We'll, we'll have you on again, yeah. and we look forward to seeing you at a conference upcoming. Thank you, boys. Appreciate it. Yep. Have a good one, man. Thanks again for joining us. Please leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. It greatly helps the show. If you haven't checked out Fountain yet, for your podcast solution, you should. You can get paid sats to listen to your favorite show. Again, thank you for joining us. See you next time.